This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our weekly maintenance stories and a monthly maintenance newsletter, please text the word SAVVY, that's S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and a bot will ask you to enter your email address and put you on the list. Once again, text S-A-V-V-Y to 33777 to get on our, on our email list. So, Colleen, you said something last time we talked about flying off aircraft carriers in tactical aircraft. That's like nobody gets to do that. Who gets to do that other than you? Very lucky individuals, yeah. Uh, you have to have a very special reason. You have to go through very special training unless you're uh, a VIP or a distinguished visitor, and then you just get a waiver. <laughs> so, are you specially trained, a VIP, or which I, I one was. are you? Oh, back in the day, I went through the um, physiology training where they make sure that your your head isn't going to explode if you go to altitude <laughs> or pull too many Gs. Uh, so I had to be screened by a doctor and then had to go through flight training, understand G-suits, go up in an altitude chamber, and then do the helo dunker where they throw you in a pool in, a, in a, like a helo body and flip it upside down and make sure you know how to egress, ejection seat training. Uh, parachute training, and then the dreaded uh, five-minute treading water in your flight suit and then learning to drown-proof, which means just rest in the water and just breathe. Anyway, uh, that was 30 years ago, 20 years ago. So, so what, air, what aircraft have you catapulted off of a ship? Uh, the first one was a COD, Carrier Onboard Delivery, which is a C2 Greyhound. It's transport aircraft. Uh, goes between the shore and the ship. Many people have been back and forth on a COD. I've also been in an E2, which is a version of the COD that has the big AWACS-like radar dome on top. And there's only three crewmen in the back and two pilot co-pilot in the front. So I was one of the three in the back. It's a lot more tactical, um, a lot more intense if you have to get out. If you go into the water, it's kind of tough to get out of the back. So it's a little more nerve-wracking. And, but then the two uh, most exciting ones were two different um, times when I flew A6s, which is the old uh, Vietnam era intruder off of the Nimitz and the Independence. 
Those were both tanker missions where I got to see a whole variety of aircraft taking gas and giving gas. And I got to fiddle with the radar and it's totally an ejection seat airplane. I could lean over and fly from manipulating the pilot stick because he's sitting right next to me. And you get a front row view of the uh, carrier deck when you're coming off and, and launching off. So that was awesome. That's, yeah, that's amazing. But this trip, um, which I took last week, I got to fly off in a v- V-22 Osprey, which was a new one. <laughs> really? New. Wow. Oh, now that's yeah. Like so it does was... it, does it, they don't use a catapult for that, right? Nope. nope. It's a very short takeoff. It, it's a slight roll and then you're on the elevator going straight up. It's huge, two huge rotors. Yeah. They used to stop in here for refuel when they were doing their deliveries from the factory. And we'd see, I don't know, one a week, one every two weeks for quite yeah. a while. They fly over it's my impressive. house uh, every day. So I'm kind of used to seeing them. But um, they, they have about 15 people um, seated in the back, lining the walls. They leave the back door basically open so you can watch the carrier disappearing <laughs> very quickly as you fly away. Uh, and I will say it was just like a short roll and then vertical, like on an elevator on steroids. It was very... Quick, yeah, and, and a pretty fast ride back to the beach. Very nice. Our next question is from Eldon, who is looking for more than his instructor can offer. Go ahead, Eldon. All right, so I fly with a club. In this club, we have three uh, 172s. And in this, in our 172s, in our, check, our club checklist, you know, we have to look under in, inside the cowling at the engine to make sure that nothing's wrong, right? And so with every instructor that I've flown with, they've, you know, I, I ask them, so what am I looking for? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> and every single instructor that I've talked to, they, they, they give me answers, but they're all along the lines of, uh, you look for something that shouldn't be there. Look, look for something that's wrong. Like, well, what, what does that mean? <laughs> Actually, it wasn't till my check ride. I just got my PPL last last July. Congratulations! Congratulations! Yeah. Um, but uh, so after my check ride, I asked the DPE, uh, who gave me the best answer so far. I said, "So, what do I look for inside the inside the cowling?" And he said, um, "You look for something. You look for black where there's not supposed to be. Right? You know, you can see your oil oil filter. So if there's." Oil coming out of the oil filter, then, or or if the magneto casing is charred and it shouldn't be, then <laughs> I mean, which is true, but but it also seems like those are pretty extreme cases, right? Yeah. So so my question is basically, when I look inside the cowling as a pilot to determine whether the engine is airworthy, what kind of things should I look for specifically in a one seventy two, but more generally would also be appreciated? Bird's nest. Bird's Bad. nest. I had don't, on don't my list. Want bird's nest in there. So this is a yeah. 172 with a Lycoming engine. Yeah, but how much can you see? Isn't you can't see hardly anything. Those things just have a little semicircular little... door yeah. Yeah. for the yeah. oil filler. The old 172s used to have yeah. big old like a, a nice big a barn door, door yeah. that you yeah. could that you could lift up <laughs> and actually up, yeah. see some stuff. But the newer ones are you know that are more tightly cowled and so on. They you can't see a whole lot unless you. Oh hey, how about sticking a borescope in there? Oh <sighs> no. Pre-flight with a boroscope, yeah. So, well, a flashlight when, will help. I was going to say a flashlight. a flashlight would be a huge help, so you can actually see something. Yeah, you're and, you're and how be about pretty looking, limited. In, 
how about looking in through the through the air, air intakes. intakes in the front Absolutely. rather than just relying on looking through the little oil door? I do that too. Like I looking mm-hmm. for birds' nests and yep. looking for yeah. any yeah. kind of Dead junk birds. that can get in there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, feathers, feathers, and blood are are bad things. And, and That's straw. something you want to know yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, this is what we do when we inspect aircraft as mechanics and and IAs. We're looking for something that's a deviation from normal. So you have to understand what normal is. And you get that from spending a lot of time looking at engines. So it's really difficult for somebody that doesn't have that experience to recognize something that's not right. But what you are looking for is hoses that aren't connected or that are leaking. That's a dead giveaway. Wires that are dangling or that are chafing or that have the uh, insulation that's stripped away and you see bare wire, that would be bad. You're looking for broken engine mounts, which would be bad, although very rarely do you see an extreme, like a big break. Usually it's cracked and you can't see that, you know, so that that would be an extreme thing. But something that's not connected or is dangling or is chafing or rubbing, or exhaust stains, which are typically gray, powdery-looking yeah. things that don't know you don't that he want. Can, I don't know that he can see exhaust. I, yeah. That's an excellent thing to look for. That, that's the thing. You know, this is why, and I, I don't know that this really applies to Eldon because he's, he's in a flying club, but this is why I like owners to do their own oil changes because it, it gives them a chance to actually remove the top cowl and actually see something. I kind of call it an exercise in advanced pre-flight. Because you can actually see stuff. Now, if you have a, a bonanza or something that has big barn door that open, uh, or my twin Cessna has side cowling doors that open real easily with just a couple of Zerg fittings, then, then you can actually inspect stuff like that. But a, a lot of airplanes like these, the 172s, you can't see a lot without taking the top cowling off, which is why it's a good idea to take the top cowling off on a regular basis. Yeah, I'm not sure the club would be too happy if I took no. a screwdriver to their <laughs> to the airplane. It takes a lot of time. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe maybe you should get yourself elected to be the maintenance officer of the club. <laughs> I mean, every club maybe. needs a maintenance officer, right? Get some free flight time. <laughs> no, but it may be that's just a blanket statement for all aircraft, but for the ones that you're flying, it's not very practical. So this these are Lycomings, right? So you're checking the oil on the right side of the engine, on the co-pilot side. One of the most common things that I see on Lycoming engines is the tube that the dipstick is in. First off, you don't have to tighten that dipstick very tight, but if you do, you have to take a pair of pliers to get it to come off. So when you find that, you tell the people that rented it before, that little cap doesn't hold the wings on. So (laughs) you don't have to just well down on that. You don't just go down till it it touches and it's kind of snug because it'll make itself plenty tight later. A new O-ring will help that not be so bad. But the other thing is that I'm eventually we'll get around to is that plastic tube has a, a gasket at the bottom that's not a crush gasket of any sort. And it screws down and it's kind of hard. And then it's safety wire. Now, the safety wire doesn't hold the torque on this tube. Safety wire doesn't hold the torque on anything. It just means when something gets loose or falls off, it stays with the airplane, so you you have it later to put back on. But uh, this is a really coarse-threaded part, and they will get loose. Matter of fact, they're almost all loose, and they wiggle in there. And so kind of pay attention. If they get really loose, there's probably oil kind of coming up through those really coarse threads. 
And it would be nice if maintenance would kind of put a new gasket on that and snug it down a little bit better. And, and it'll last for a little while, but you know, at least you will impress your flight instructor that you were paying attention and you actually found something. Paul, yeah. you weren't, you didn't go the way I thought you were going to go on that because I thought you were going to say, well, you know, if you need a pair of pliers to take off the well cap <laughs> while you've got that pair of pliers, here's five <laughs> other things you can do with it. <laughs> Try not to attack the airplane with tools if you can help it. <laughs> and actually, when I check my oil, I reach in and hold the tube and twist the top so that I don't end up oh, stretching no. the safety wire. Now, there's an experienced Lycoming owner right there. Because I hate re-safetying that tube because you use the really thick safety wire and it's a bear to get in there and it's a pain. So, But you can only do that if you have small hands that can reach into that little... <laughs> okay, fine. But yeah. yeah. Those are those are some fantastic ideas. I hadn't thought about looking at the the oil the oil tube. Well, maybe the only thing that you can see. Yeah, that's so probably it, at least you can see something in almost every airplane you can squawk and say, hey, but don't ground the airplane. It's not a groundable offense. Uh it's it's merely uh something to let your DPE or whoever you're trying to impress. No, and if you are paying attention. If you do find anything that looks like a Ziploc bag with drugs, you should let them know right away. <laughs> <laughs> you might get extra credit for that one. <laughs> well, okay. Well, that was a great question. And we obviously had to think about that one a little bit. So thank you for calling with that. Uh-huh. Okay. Take care, Eldon. Yep. Thanks, Eldon. Bye. So our next question is from Mike who experienced a burn valve and a relatively new engine. He's trying to figure out uh, where the culprit is. How are you doing, Mike? Good to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoy listening to your podcasts. And um, I've got a 450-hour since new uh, IO550 and a, and a 182. But anyway, you know, 20 compression. Airplanes did the annual down there in June and 20 compression. And and the borescope confirmed a burn valve. And I'm sitting there going, I've never seen cylinder head temps above 380. And then I started looking, you know, there's a lot of internet conjecture. And I try and sort through the wheat and the chaff there. And I've read Paul's article on lapping. And it was too late in this instance to lap. But I'm reading about people that are prophylactically replacing uh, rotocoils. If that's, I've heard rotocaps and rotocoils. I'm not sure what the right term is, but it's rotocoil. Yeah. yeah. Well, rotator caps on a Lycoming and rotocoil on a Continental. So one thing, everybody wants to blame themselves for burn valves. And this is just the way I see it. I don't see anything that you as an owner operator can do to cause a burn valve, except that you started the engine. <laughs> everything, everything that burns a valve is something that you can't actually control. It, there's something that keeps the valve from making contact with the seat. That's where it gets cooling. And you can't change that. Now, someday when we have unleaded gas, I think a lot of that problem is going to go away. But um, this is not something that you, well, let's see. You did it, yes, but it's not your fault. Valves burn not because, because you're running too hot, which is just a common misconception. They burn because there's a geometry problem. And the geometry problem can be caused by various things. It can be caused by deposits on the valve stem that are making it hard for the valve to close all the way. 
It can be caused by wear in the valve guide that's allowing the, the, the valve to wobble with respect to the uh, seat. It can be caused by the valve and seat not being perfectly concentric when the cylinder was built. There was a long period of time where Continental was turning out cylinders where the concentricity wasn't quite right. And the cylinders would just start burning valves at five or 600 hours. And it wasn't anybody's fault except Continental's when they built them. And then they changed their process and they, they solved that problem. Um, this this is a 2016 engine that was installed uh, very late 2016 or yeah. 2017. New, so that, that not, they, not remand. That was that was typically not a problem at that point. But the point is that there's probably no correlation between the burn valve and your operation. Now, I'm staring at the at the borescope image that you sent, and the valve doesn't look that seriously burned. I'm a little bit surprised that you say that, that it was too far to, to lap in place because that valve actually looks like a moderately good candidate for lapping in place. I'm only looking at the face of the valve, of course. I, I, I don't see an image with the valve wide open to where you can look at the back of it. But I think there, there's probably a fair chance that that valve could have been saved without removing the cylinder. It's a little hard to tell. Now, Mike, just for the benefit of the people that can't see the picture, it is a asymmetric color change with green on the edge, which is what triggers the, oh my God, I've got a burn valve reaction. You do think that that valve's not been compromised materially and could still be lapped? Again, it's hard to tell without getting a, a borescope picture with the valve wide open, looking at the, at the back surface. Because the real question is, is there been significant metal erosion where, where we don't really have a, a, a valve that, I mean, it, it, the valve has to come be replaced if there's significant metal erosion or if the valve has started to warp. It sure doesn't look like it started to warp and it's a little hard to tell about the metal erosion, but it looks from the borescope images to me like this was caught fairly early and that it was at least worth a shot to try to lap the valve in place. We have been seeing a, quite a lot of Continental rotocoil failures. And in fact, there's, there's talk that Continental is looking for a new rotocoil vendor or a new rotocoil design to try to... Did I had flat spots on the rotocoils. Did you see that picture? That yeah, yeah, yeah. and, that, yeah, and that's the way. That's that's the normal problem. The 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 thing that makes that rotocoil rotate is this little garter spring, and the garter spring wears it flat spots, and when it flat spots enough, then the then the rotator doesn't rotate reliably, and I don't know why, but my impression is that. The Continentals didn't really have this problem back in the, you know, the 70s and the 80s. It, it seems to be a more recent occurrence of these rotocoil failures. And I don't know whether, whether they've changed vendors or changed something about them, but they, they clearly are having a problem holding up. Well, thanks for calling. It was nice talking, Mike. Really, really appreciate listening to this stuff. And for a guy like me, it's a, it's a neat way to, to learn and, and add to the repertoire. So Very cool. Appreciate the call. Take care. Enjoy that plan. Right. Bye-bye. Yep. yep. Our next question comes from Nick, who's got some uh, cold weather concerns. Welcome to the show, Nick. 
Hey, I feel like I've uh, been allowed into the Jedi Temple. Thank you for allowing <laughs> me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, Padwan. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's a good thing Helen doesn't listen to these podcasts. That's all I can say. I'm still curious about the winterization intake cowling kit that I have. I have it. I've never used it because there's a lot of myth that goes with that thing. And if you read the blogs out of Alaska, they totally diss it. They're they're more the duct tech crowd. Um, <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> iron, ironic, ironically, when I was really looking into this, I got to looking at the uh, the Continental Operations Manual for the 0470, which is what I have in my 182. And there's a paragraph in there that says if you don't have the uh, the cal intake blocks available, a strip of one inch masking tape through the center line of the oil to cooler can maintain adequate oil temperature. And I was shocked oh. when I read that. Wow. There you, go. you have tape. permission, but I would definitely not use masking tape. That's, that's kind of low class. You could use well, the blue type. The it's flammable. That. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> so, you know, a couple things. It's, it's not uncommon for me to take off the airport and it's, you know, it could be mid thirties. Uh, maybe even 40 degrees. And when I climb up to altitude, it's, you know, in the 20s. And those cal intakes, they get big lettering on them, don't use above OAT temperatures of 20 degrees. So mm. I'm scratching my head a little going, well, is it okay to take off at warm temperatures with those on, knowing that I'm climbing up? Now, the downside to those is you can't take them off once you're airborne because you find out they're too much. I, I wonder... You ever heard of a guy named Adrian Eichhorn that flew like over the pole and in his Bonanza? And if I remember right, he completely covered the air inlets on his Bonanza. And all temperatures were still really, <laughs> really cold. But anyway, the you have you're doing two different things. The air inlets on the front of the cowling are reducing the the total air flow or air pressure on the top of the engine. So you're reducing available air to the oil cooler and to the cylinders. The tape on the cooler is only limiting cooling to the oil. So kind of put that in the thought process. If your cylinder head temperatures are not terrible, then follow the instructions and put tape, use a real high quality aviation grade aluminum speed tape from you know, National Aviation Parts Association or something like that. Do you, do you uh, have a color preference? Oh, silver, definitely <laughs> silver. <laughs> well, and that, that kind of brings up another part of my question. So my CHT, I just have the stock Cessna gauge, you know, the green arc. And this engine runs at the bottom of the green arc almost year round. I can get it to go up a little bit on warm summer days, but... In the winter, it's either at the bottom of the green arc or even below it. So I don't have a heat problem per se. And that's why I was wondering well, about not on that one cylinder anyway. Uh, yeah. Plus, plus I, don't, I don't know that I would I don't know that I would trust <laughs> that. Trust that. Yeah, no, not at all. I, I know. And it's on the number two cylinder, which theoretically, you know, it's on the pilot side rear, which would be the hottest cylinder, right? Well, the the type certificate data sheet on that airplane specifies which cylinder it's supposed to be on, but you know, you could go find a hotter cylinder to put it on if it makes you feel better. I'm just saying. <laughs> what are you saying, Paul? <laughs> well, uh, so uh, 
with the CHTs running cool and wintertime takeoffs, I've, I've wondered, should I just leave the cow flaps closed for takeoff? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're there for you to use. Do whatever you need to with them to get the results you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I always worried about it because the owner's manual is like, oh, cow flaps open for takeoff no matter what. And I'm thinking, well, it's cold. You know, why do I want those open? Well, if you want to leave them open for takeoff and as soon as you rotate, then close them. I mean, the, the, the point is the cow flaps are there for you to get a result. So you don't just leave them open or closed because you're in a specific mode of flight. You open or close them to get the results you need. That's, of course, I, that's, I, I, would, I would feel a lot better if we actually knew what his CHTs really were. Yeah, well, yeah. but we and, and, I, and I realize that you know, there's limitations to a single probe CHT. Well, I think you answered my questions. Thank you so much for having me and I appreciate everything you guys do. Yeah, great you. questions. Glad to have you on. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Our next question is from Joe, who's wondering about oil loss from a gauge line. Go ahead, Joe. I had to listen to a podcast that uh, a lady was flying a 1956 Cessna 172. And she uh, saw the oil pressure go to zero. 15 minutes later, the engine seized. And back in 1960, 1970, when I got my private ticket, of course, that was probably before Colleen was born. Um, I, uh, I remember reading that uh, there's an orifice in the engine block that restricts the amount of oil that goes to the oil pressure gauge to take care of that situation. And my understanding is that that's the reason when you first crank up an engine, I was flying 150s, Cessna 150s the oil pressure doesn't come up like it does on an automobile engine. It takes, you know, 10, 15, maybe 30 seconds if it's cold enough. And, you know, my impression was that if you lost the line, which is normally eighth-inch copper going to your oil pressure gauge, you'd run out of fuel before you ran out of oil. But is that not true? No, that's not true. No, that's not true. That, well, what is true is that there's an orifice. And orifices, I'm not aware that it's machined into the crankcase. I think it's an external fitting. It is. Yeah, it's a fitting. But I, I can tell you for sure that you will not run out of fuel before you run out of oil. I, I had an oil line go, oh, God, years ago. I was flying a Balanca Super Viking. And uh, I, I didn't see the oil pressure go to zero. I just felt my feet get real warm. <laughs> And, and, and I realized that my shoes were covered with engine oil, warm, very warm engine oil. And uh, I landed the airplane at the next available opportunity. And uh, there had been a fair amount of oil loss. I mean, I, I'm glad I didn't fly a whole lot further in, in that condition. And, of course, the shoes were pretty much trashed as well. <laughs> so what is the purpose of the orifice? Is it to step down the pressure going to the gauge to calibrate no, it's, it? No, it's, it's, to, it's to prevent massive amounts of oil loss. Uh, but the notion that you could fly for hours and hours and hours having that oil going overboard and still being okay is, is, is certainly, not, uh, certainly not true. But the other thing that, that bothered me about what you said is that, that you, you're alleging that because of this orifice, it it takes 10, 15, 30 seconds for the oil pressure to register. That's not right either. It should register immediately. And if it doesn't, 
it's most likely because there's air in the line. And one of the things that we have to do from time to time is to bleed that line, to purge it of all of air and make sure that it's completely full of oil. And another problem that happens is because the oil in that line is really captive, it doesn't flow, you know. And sometimes, you know, there'll be oil in that line that's 30 years old and it, uh, it doesn't flow very well anymore. So from time to time, it's a good idea to, uh, to purge that line and, and force fresh engine oil through it, make sure it's completely full of oil and that that oil is, uh, is, is in a relatively liquid state so that it can, it can conduct the pressure to the, to the gauge. Yeah, I've seen the stuff come out of there. It almost looks emulsified, like there's water in there as well. So I've I've purged it. It's Good idea. Yeah, flush it out once in a while. But in cold weather, it will take a little bit of time for your oil pressure to come up. I'm just assuming because the oil's not flowing as fast. Yeah, it's so thick. Yeah. All right. Well, y'all y'all have a good day. I, now that I see your picture, I see that the ASAMPs has one rose and two thorns. <laughs> He's not talking Ouch. about you, Paul. <laughs> no, no. Oh, that's right. Not me. Not me at all. Thank you. <clears throat> you are very kind, Joe. <laughs> so our next question is from Troy, who is questioning his shop's advice on oil filters. Welcome to the show, Troy. Good afternoon. My question has to do with adding an oil filter to our Continental O200. We've got a night. 1975 Continental O200 in our, our, our Sesta 150M, and it just went in for annual. And I questioned our A&P about adding an oil filter. It still has the original screen um, in place, and I was just wondering if that filter element on the screen does as good a job as, as the spin oil filter itself. You know, we want to protect this engine as best as we can. And um, we were just kind of curious what, what your thoughts were on that. Well, the the main difference, well, I won't say the main difference. A large difference is that the spin-on filters have a much larger surface area. I think they probably do a better job. But the first thing that came to mind, which is not your question, but I'm going to answer the question that you didn't ask, and, and then somebody else can answer the question that you actually asked, are you considering a remote oil filter? Is that the that's the option? I'm not real good on O200s. How much room uh, do you have in the back there? Yeah, well, the my concern about I'll just go right to the point. My concern about the remote oil filter is that if the airplane sits for a long period of time, you can unprime the oil pump. And it can do some serious damage routinely and we have a, a 150 that the only 150 that we work on because he's a local guy that we just really like and we we can't say no and every time we do an annual inspection because he flies so infrequently we have to force prime his oil pump to start it every time and it's uh it's a problem anyway so now someone can actually answer your question i just had to throw that out there well, I mean, one thing that's great about an oil filter is, um, as Paul said, it, it does catch smaller particles and you can cut it open and use it for diagnostics. So, I mean, you can certainly look at your screen too, and you should be cleaning a screen. 
But the oil filter, you can open the pleats up and rinse it and, and look at what comes out and and look at that material and learn more about what your engine's doing inside. So on top of the superior filtering capabilities, it also allows you to do better diagnostics for troubleshooting. I'm still puzzled about Paul's 150 that has the the pump that loses prime. And I, I, I have a feeling it must have something to do with how that remote oil filter was, where it was mounted is, and, and stuff because that 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 shouldn't happen it shouldn't happen and but when we experienced it we ended up calling uh our friend john jewel down at jewel aircraft and he had experienced that before matter of fact this engine because the airplane sat for such a long period of time uh, the owner took off and almost lost the engine and came around and it's down being rebuilt now because it ate the engine up uh, he ran it long enough with no oil so apparently this is a thing with those and maybe it's the way it's mounted, but it was definitely a problem on this one. I would just say, if you're going to do a remote mount one, be cautious and do some research, you know, check out the 150, 152 club and see uh, if they have other experience with it that may steer you in a different direction. Of course, the oil filter adapters that, that screw right into where the, where the screen are have had their share of problems too. That's true, yeah. Um, because you've got a big heavy filter sitting on a lever arm uh, in a place that really wasn't designed to to handle that kind of weight. So there's no uh, AD yet on those, but there's talk of an a potential well, there's, AD. There's AD on some of them, that's for sure. Well, the original AC that Cessna installed on the bigger engines, they didn't put it on this one. But yeah, that and that's an older. AD. You have to check it every time you do a, an oil change. Yeah. And I don't believe this oil filter is mounted where the screen is because I believe the screen has to be removed. Yeah, the remote, the remote, the remote mounted ones, I think you remove the screen and you screw in an adapter where the screen used to be. And, and then there are two flex hoses that go from that adapter to wherever you mount the filter on the firewall, typically. Okay. Yeah. So you're adding more points of failure. I well. believe this one's mounted right to the block where where an oil cooler could also be mounted, I believe. This one does not have hoses. Oh. So uh, my, my, other, my other question kind of was that related to this was, you know, what micron size does an oil filter filter down to compared to a screen? I think Colleen mentioned that a filter paper element will do a better job of filtering. I just didn't know. Is that screen protecting the engine as well as an oil filter would then? No, the, well, the, the, the paper uh, element filters, the pleated paper media, capture things down about 50 microns. And I'm guessing the screen is probably more like 200 or 250 microns. I, I found in the literature that um, the screens capture down to 60, but you're, you should be concerned in the range between 25 and 60 microns, implying that the oil filter goes even lower than 60. But the, the bottom line is the paper filter is much better. Well, that's what I figured. That's why I wrote in, because my AMP said that they have removed several of these spin-on filters and replaced them with the original factory screen, and I could not for the life of me figure out why they would do that. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, that seems backwards to me. 
I, I would agree with you. They said they would do whatever we wanted, but I, I was just confused by that. So. Nope. I would be much more comfortable with a, a spin-on filter. I agree. All right. Well, that was easy. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, thank you for the question. And um, we appreciate your patience and waiting. <laughs> no, yeah. You guys keep up the good work. I, I love this podcast. I think it's great. Super. Uh, glad Thanks to hear for it. listening. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Troy. You bet. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our next question is from Michael, who is trying to dig deeper on in-flight mag checks. Go ahead, Michael. Great. Thanks. for Thank you very much. It's great to see you. I sent this question in um, really as a follow-up or a clarification. I didn't realize I'd be a guest on this show, so thanks for having me on here. <laughs> I'm a few months away from first flight of an RV-10 that I've been building. Oh, wow. Excellent. Co- yeah. co- very copious cool. notes. I've had copious notes from all your break-in and flight procedures, so thank you oh, for yeah. all of that. Good. So the, the question I have, and this is, again, it's a follow-on to something you guys said a few uh, uh, podcasts ago. You were discussing in-flight mag checks, and someone said that RPM should drop, which makes perfect sense to me on a mag check, but that EGT should go up, up, about 50 degrees during a mag check. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm thinking if, if, if RPM is dropping and therefore combustion is getting worse and you probably have some gas in your exhaust, typically flying too rich means your CHTs will drop. So how come flying on one mag makes your EGTs rise? I, I don't recall who said it. I can go back and listen to the yeah. podcast again. We all said it. it. Yeah, we all said it. Yeah. Well, I'm, so- I'm, I'm, I'm glad to explain that. For, first of all, RPMs would not drop if you had a constant speed prop. Uh, in in-flight mag check, the prop is going to prop governor is going to hold RPM constant. You, you you see a an RPM drop on the ground. You might see a little RPM drop if you were f- flying a fixed pitch prop, but you wouldn't see any RPM drop with a constant speed prop because the constant speed prop is constant speed. <laughs> but as far as the EGT is concerned. When you turn off a mag in flight so that you go from from dual spark plug operation to single spark plug operation, it doesn't make the combustion worse in the sense, I think that's the the term you used. It it just slows it down. Uh, And it slows it down because instead of a two flame fronts that are burning across the combustion chamber and meeting one another kind of in the middle, you have one flame front that has to burn all the way across the combustion chamber because it's only being night in one place. So the combustion event is just as complete. It just takes longer to occur. And because it takes longer to occur, when the exhaust valve starts to open, the combustion event hasn't consumed everything yet. It's still sort of in process because it's slowed down. So you wind up throwing more energy out the back door because in effect the exhaust valve opened prematurely for that rate of combustion now just to give you an example when we run the engine very very lean when we when we lean it lean at peak that also slows down the combustion event and so what we try to do when we when we do that is also reduce rpm to run the engine more slowly and give more time between the, the time of ignition and the time that the, the exhaust valve starts to open to accommodate that, that slower combustion. Another way of doing that, if you have variable timing, is to cause the ignition to occur a little earlier, to advance the ignition a little bit. 
And that's what some of the electronic ignition systems will do in crews that they'll they'll advance the ignition timing again to provide a little bit more time for that combustion event to play out from the time that it starts when the spark plug fires to the time that the exhaust valve opens. But if the in, in the case of an in-flight mag check, you're not changing the time significantly. You're just causing the combustion event to take longer to play out. And so you wind up losing more energy out the exhaust and converting less of that energy to to horsepower that turns the propeller. And that's why EGT goes up. EGT is not a measure of what's going on during the combustion event, because during the combustion event, the exhaust valve is closed and the EGT probe can't see inside the cylinder. What the EGT is telling you is how much energy is being thrown out the back door, how much of it is being wasted out the exhaust. And when you're running on a single mag, more of that, more of the energy is wasted. And that's that why your RPM goes down. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And thank you for explaining it like that. The, uh, the slower combustion, um, is, I, didn't, I didn't really think of it that way. So uh, I appreciate your explanation and that clarification. Thank you very much. Yeah, so next time you're doing your mag checks at the end of the runway, watch EGTs and pay less attention to RPM. Because if, if you get out to the end of the, you know, for doing your run-up, usually right after or maintenance, you do the mag check and you have no mag drop. And you're so excited because you just know that mechanic did a phenomenal <laughs> job of timing the mags. What you really know then is that they left the P lead off because you have to have a mag drop. The mag will, it will drop. And the way to know, instead of watching RPMs, is to watch all the EGTs rise. If they don't rise, you didn't turn off a mag. It's pretty straightforward. When I do that check, I listen with my butt to the RPM, but I watch my engine monitor and I'm looking for all of the uh, EGTs to rise. If one of them doesn't, that means that one of the cylinders is not firing on that mag or not firing fully on that mag. Yeah, then you get to... Hey, 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 Colleen, I I need you to... Elaborate a little bit on this concept of listening with your butt. I have not heard that one before. Oh, come that on. So, that sounds like a capability that I would like to learn. I, I want to be in going I want to be in a I'm room. Not touching of, that. I want to be in a room with a whole bunch of pilots listening to this podcast for the first time and just see the reaction to that. I'll have what no they are, what they were doing. Right. <laughs> So if you if you really pay attention, like on your RV10, because you're putting it together, you know which mag is firing which spark plugs. So then when you taxi back, and you know that when you went to the left mag and the number two cylinder EGT went down, you not only know that you don't have a mag problem, you have a spark plug problem, you know exactly which spark plug it is. And now you get to deal with that in a handful of minutes instead of all of the spark plugs in an hour. Which is why an engine monitor saves you money, troubleshooting did, money. Wait, did we did we already have that conversation uh, with we're somebody? We're repeating ourselves. And, it's, and it's, it's also why I always carry two spare spark plugs and a spark plug wrench in my wing locker when I fly on a trip. There you go. The panel isn't quite finished yet, but it will have an engine monitor from Garmin. So uh, I'm covered on that. Nice. I'm covered on that basis. We're all set. Very nice. Good job. It's going to be beautiful. You won't. You won't. You won't get the lecture then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good luck with that, Michael. That sounds real exciting. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for your help today. Yeah. Thanks for calling. And Enjoyed thanks for the waiting. call. Well, folks, that's a wrap. 
The three of us know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. We welcome any ideas you might have on what you would like to hear. You can send us your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody.